You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. I had the privilege of growing up with a dad and mom who loved Jesus, and quite frankly, they loved telling other people about Jesus. I grew up in a rough neighborhood. It was a coal mining village. And uh, my mom and dad saw themselves as missionaries in our village. So they were regularly talking to the neighbors about Jesus Christ. Uh, they would talk to co-workers, friends, even strangers about Jesus Christ, often in my presence when I would hear them speak of Jesus so passionately. I can remember representatives of, of a particular religious sect going door to door in our coal mining village. And when they came to our door, my father would invite them in. And I would often sit in the corner of the dining room as my dad would sit at the dining room table with two or three of these uh, religious representatives. And um, I would sit there and listen to my dad. He would begin respectfully to listen to what they had to say. And, and then he would take his big King James Bible and he would open it up on the table. And then he would usually ask this question. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? And for the next 30 or 40 minutes, my dad would talk to those folks about Jesus. He was not a trained theologian. He was a trucker who had a high school education. He, he, was, he was a one-book man. But that book was God's book. And he knew his Bible. And he would talk to these people about Jesus Christ. You know, that question has been asked for hundreds of years. What will you do with Jesus? And that's my question for you this morning. What will you do with Jesus? It's an important question, isn't it? In fact, it's a life and death question. It's an eternal life and death question. What will you do with Jesus? Join me, please, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And this morning we're going to look at a relatively long passage. We're going to look at verses 30 through 47. As you turn to John 5, uh, let me introduce this by saying that there are many people today, as there have been in the past, who have, can I call it, admiration or respect for Jesus. They say Jesus was a great teacher. In fact, he was probably one of the greatest teachers who ever lived. Other people might say he was such a good man. He was always doing kind things for other people. And yet, he wasn't God. It's not like we need to worship him. He's not the only way to heaven. But what did Jesus say about himself? Did Jesus actually claim to be God come in the flesh? Did Jesus Christ actually claim deity? There's probably... An I don't know if I can prove this, but there are probably is no place where this is more clear, I believe, than in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, our passage today. In John, chapter 5, all through this long chapter, Jesus continues to identify himself as God come in the flesh, equal with God the Father. Back in the 1940s, in fact, it was during World War II, a famous Oxford professor, some of you know his name, C.S. Lewis, was being interviewed on British radio. And his messages 
on the radio were transcribed. In fact, they were later put into a book that I know some of you have read, Mere Christianity. And when C.S. Lewis was giving those broadcasts, he said some very profound things. I'm going to read to you now a a part of the transcript from one of those radio broadcasts. And I will not try a British (laughs) interpretation here, so you you can relax. C.S. Lewis said this on British radio 75 years ago. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. People often say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis continues, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg (laughs) or else he would be the devil of hell. You, You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis continues. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange and terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus made some astonishing claims about himself. Are you open to John 5? Let's look earlier at some passages we've looked at over the last two weeks. How about verse 17? John 5, 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Or drop down to verse 21. Jesus says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. That's a statement of divinity, friends. The Father judges no one but gives given judgment to the Son. That's a claim to deity. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, even as Pastor Mark preached from this text last week that the Son deserves the honor of the Father as well. You know, if Jesus never meant, if Jesus never meant to claim equality with God the Father, he could have easily dismissed his accusers. These people that are accusing him of blasphemy, these people are accusing him of being demonic in his claims of deity, if Jesus had no intention of ever implying 
that he was God, come in the flesh, he could have quickly dismissed their accusations with something like this. Whoa, whoa, guys, wait a minute. You, you got me wrong here. I, I, never, I never meant to claim I was equal with God. Do you realize how many times Jesus was given the opportunity to dismiss those accusations with some defense like that? You've misunderstood me. You've misquoted me. I, I never claimed to be equal with God. But Jesus never did that, did he? Jesus never dismissed their accusations. In fact, if we were to see this scene that we're going to look at today in John 5, 30-47, if we were to view this as a courtroom, it's as if rather than dismissing the accusations like, you got me wrong, guys, I never claimed to be God. Instead, Jesus stands on his claims of deity and even calls on witnesses to validate his claims. And then, for his accusers, he calmly turns the tables and the accusers become the defendants. You follow along now as I read this passage. I'm going to begin at verse 30 of John chapter 5. Quoting our Lord, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works of the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing. Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus begins in the scene as the defendant. What's the background here? What's going on? Jesus has been healing. Jesus has been preaching. Some people are listening to him. Some people are putting their faith in him. The religious establishment, the leaders, were upset. 
they began to accuse him. They began to accuse him of some horrible things. He was a liar. He was a lunatic. They felt themselves as if they were superior to Jesus. They were over him. They had a right to be the judge of Jesus. By the way, in verse 31, we read a fascinating thing. Maybe we ought to uh, talk about that for just a minute here. Jesus said, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Why would Jesus say that? Well, it's possible that what's going on here is Jesus is accommodating his accusers by referring back to the law that they held so dearly and one that he himself lived by. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6 says that in a courtroom situation, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So it's possible that what Jesus is saying here in verse 31 is, okay, if I just say on my own, no, I am who I say I am, you won't believe me. It's not so much that Jesus thought that he was false. He knew he was telling the truth, but it's quite possible that he was accommodating them, saying, okay, you want witnesses? We'll get witnesses. But there's another possibility here. If you look at the context, Jesus has just said in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. And so, all through the Gospel of John, one thing we'll see over and over again is how Jesus refers to being in unity with his Father. That Jesus was always in sync with his Father. He says, I do what I see him doing. I, hear, I, I do what I hear him doing. I and my Father are one. And if Jesus hypothetically would separate himself from his Father, then he might not have truthfulness in what he says or does. But that's purely hypothetical because Jesus was always in sync with his father. He always did what his father said. He always did what his father wanted him to do. God the Father and God the Son were continuously, perfectly in sync. But these people maybe wanted witnesses. So Jesus says in verse 32 that he can call witness. And where did their minds go? Uh, the Gospel of John tells us here. Uh, through Jesus' implications, who did they think Jesus was going to call to the witness stand? John the Baptist. And so his accusers think, oh, Jesus is going to call John the witness to the witness, John the Baptist to the witness stand. But that's not who Jesus is referring to. He's referring to none other than his father. It's as if he's saying, I only need one witness, and that's my father, my heavenly father is the only witness I need. The only witness you need. Jesus' accusers were probably taken aback by that. Look at verse 37. John 5, 37. It says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And we can think of some obvious ways he did that. Remember when Jesus was baptized. Do some of you remember that when Jesus was baptized? As he was standing dripping wet there at the Jordan River with his cousin John the Baptist. A voice came from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That there was an audible voice from heaven speaking, This is my Son. And then sometime later, when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with his core disciples, they heard a voice from heaven that day as well. Jesus was still speaking, it says. 
when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased listen to him and so God the father had spoken audibly on at least two occasions verifying his son's identity and his son's claim at the baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father spoke and said, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. And yet when Jesus says here in John chapter 5 that the Father witnesses to him, I think he means more than those audible voices. I think he means that God the Father provides testimony to his Son's identity in a multiplicity of ways. The religious leaders, maybe their minds went to John the Baptist. So even though Jesus technically doesn't call him to the witness stand, he refers to the testimony of John the Baptist as being valid. How did John, the Apostle John, begin his gospel? Do you want to go back to chapter 1 with me? Look right here in the prologue. In John chapter 1, in verse 6 it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, through Jesus Christ. Or we could drop down to verse 29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so Jesus' credentials are being questioned by the religious establishment. How dare you say you are God the Son? How dare you say you are equal with God? How dare you claim deity? And Jesus says, do you want witnesses? I call upon my Heavenly Father. He has spoken not only directly, but he's also spoken through other means. He has spoken through the testimony of John the Baptist, whom he sent. And then Jesus calls on other evidences that the Father is testifying to the validity of his Son's claims. In verse 36 of John 5, Jesus talks about signs and wonders that he had done. By these works, Jesus is primarily referring to the miracles he did. Remember just a couple of Sundays ago, we heard about Jesus healing that invalid at the pool of Bethesda. And how the religious leaders were so upset that he did it on the Sabbath day. That's just one example. But you know, the miracles that Jesus did were not just feats to amaze people. Jesus didn't do miracles just to kind of make people stop and hang their mouths open, you know, with astonishment. This was not some gag to get people's attention. He did that as signs. That all these things he did, the healings, and later his resurrection is the primary example. These signs that Jesus did were to point to him, identifying him as God come in the flesh. They're to identify him, signs pointing to him as the Son of God. What did Nicodemus say that night? He came to interview Jesus by night. 
John chapter 3, 1 and 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You know, just an aside here about the miracles that Jesus did. Every generation has its cynics. Every generation has its skeptics, even as ours does. And uh, there are plenty of people today, and there have always been people who have said things like, well, come on. Raising somebody from the dead? That, that, that just doesn't happen. I mean, once someone's dead, they're dead. Dead people don't come alive again. To speak a word and a lame man walks, to speak a word and a blind man sees, that just doesn't happen. You know, there, were, there are plenty of skeptics, plenty of cynics in every generation. But you know something fascinating about the generation in which Jesus lived? No one denied the reality of the miracles. No one ever denied the reality that Jesus healed people. No one ever denied the reality that Jesus gave blind people sight, lame people the ability to walk. No one could deny the fact that there were dead people who came to life. So what did the religious establishment do? In John 11, we'll see this in a couple of months, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They acknowledged in their private quarters that Jesus was doing miracles, that he was doing signs. They couldn't deny the existence of the miracles Jesus did. So you know what they did with them? Some of you know. What did they do? They attributed them to the devil. Pharisee said, Matthew 12, 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies, the prince of demons, that the man casts out demons. In other words, we can't deny this man's miracles, but he must be doing them by the power of the devil. Jesus wasn't done in calling witnesses. Look at verse 39. He calls to the witness stand God's holy word. He calls to the witness stand the scriptures that these people, these accusers, said they believed and honored. And Jesus said, just, just read the scriptures. The scriptures they had would be Genesis through Malachi. And he says, just read the scriptures. They speak of me. He could have started back at the beginning. He could have started back in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day God would send a serpent crusher. He could have taken them back to the Passover that feast that they faithfully celebrated every year. And said, do you realize that that Passover back in Moses' day pointed to me? That's why John could say that day when he saw me, behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb provided by God. Jesus could have taken them to Isaiah 52 and 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows familiar with suffering, like, like a man from whom we hide our faces. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. By his wounds we are healed. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. So the Lord makes a life his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. 
Jesus could have gone to place after place after place in the Old Testament and say, guys, do you see how this speaks of me? I call to the witness stand God's holy word. It's important that we see Jesus in all the Bible. People sometimes say, well, what part of the Bible is about Jesus? And the answer is, all of it. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. He's the central theme. Well, how tragic that these people who studied the Bible, who love to study the Bible, and quite frankly, a lot of these people that were accusing Jesus would have had massive portions of the Bible memorized. One of the things many of these religious leaders were famous for was their ability to memorize massive portions of the Old Testament. So even though they could have quoted many of these passages, they missed the point. They denied the subject matter of Jesus himself in the scriptures that they were studying and memorizing. Now Jesus calls another witness to the stand. He specifically, by name, calls Moses. Moses was kind of like the patron saint of Judaism, the defender of the people. Uh, many of the Jews would have seen Moses as their advocate, someone who will speak to God on our behalf. And yet even through Moses, God promised in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. A reference to Jesus, the coming Messiah. So from the standpoint of these accusers, they are the prosecutors and Jesus is the defendant. And yet, as they're accusing him, the tables are being turned now, it's helpful to keep in mind that the Jewish court system was different than our modern court system here in America. Our modern court system here in America is primarily focused on one issue. Is the defendant innocent or guilty? That's the only question. Is the defendant innocent or guilty? So if his innocence can be established, case dismissed. If his guilt is established, he has to suffer some punishment. And the case is over. But in the Jewish system, it was a little bit different from that. In the Jewish system, if an accuser brought an accusation, and in the course of the proceedings, it was determined that his accusations were deliberately false, now he was in trouble. And so the accuser could easily become the defendant in the court. And so someone who brings false accusation in the courtroom can be in trouble for his false accusations, and now he has to suffer for his crime of bringing false witness. And so here in this passage, we almost see this happening, don't we? That these accusers accusing Jesus of being of the devil, and, and he's not who he says he is, he's not equal with God. Jesus brings out witness after witness after witness to prove the veracity of his claims. And now the tables are turning. And Jesus becomes the prosecutor, or maybe more literally, Jesus becomes the judge. And his accusers become defendants. And Jesus says these sorts of things. I'll, I'll say these without a lot of comment for sake of time. Verse 37. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. Verse 42. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Or back to verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. What's going on here? Why is that the case? Why are these people not following Jesus Christ? Are they lacking information? Are they lacking evidence? 
Do they just need more proof that Jesus is who he says he is? Was Jesus not being clear in his claims? Does Jesus need to sharpen his language skills and, and make his claims a little more permanent? The, the reason these people were not putting their faith in Jesus Christ was not a head issue. They, they were not lacking evidence. They were not lacking information. The testimony of Jesus being the Son of God was clear and multiple. Their problem was not a head issue. Their problem was a heart issue. It was, and I choose these words carefully, it was deliberate unbelief. It was deliberate unbelief. They refused to come in the face of overwhelming evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus says in verse 38, for you do not believe the one he has sent. Verse 43, you do not receive me. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not receive the glory that comes from the only God? Just a short word of aside there. I mean, these religious leaders apparently had the praise of man as their idol. You know, we all tend to look for idols, don't we? We look for something that will make life work for us. We, we, we look for something that will make us feel good about ourselves. It will give us some sense of identity or purpose. And, and these religious leaders were looking at the praise of man as a means of finding significance in their life. It was the idol of their heart. And Jesus said, you're hanging on to your idol. You're hanging on your, to your idol of the praise of man, the honor that comes from man. But until you repent of that, until you lay down your, your, your lust for the praise of man, you will never bend your knee to his Messiah. You will never come to his Messiah and say, I see you as my only hope. And you will be seeking then the honor that comes from God. What did Jesus say? He said, if you want to be my followers, you have to die to yourself. You, 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 have to, you have to kill your idol. You have to die to that. And these guys weren't willing to do that. They, they would rather have the praise of men than to have the Messiah that God had sent. In verses 46 and 47, Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. They, they thought Moses would be their defender, and yet Moses is going to come and actually be their accuser on Judgment Day. Why was Jesus... Why was Jesus rebuking these people? Was he just kind of miffed? You know? They're saying mean things about me. And I'm miffed. I'll put them in their place. Is that what's going on here? Is Jesus just miffed that they're not honoring him the way they should? He, he says explicitly in verse 41 that he doesn't need, he doesn't need honor from men. He, he's saying, I, I don't need your approval. I'm, I'm not looking for your honor. The reason I'm drawing your attention to your problem here that you're not putting your faith in me isn't because I'm angry at you, but because I want you to be saved. Isn't that fascinating that Jesus hurt for the salvation of his accusers? He wasn't trying to win an argument. He was trying to win souls. I want to draw your attention back to the courtroom. And just say to all of us here today that you and I are going to have our turn in the courtroom as well. 
you and I will appear before Jesus the judge. One of the repeated statements in the Bible is that each of us will have our turn of appearing before God the judge. Paul said to the Greeks in Athens, Acts 17, he said, God commands all people everywhere, not just Jews, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who did God the Father raise from the dead, kids? Kids? Jesus. Some of you kids are getting old. (laughs) Paul's making a point, isn't he? He's saying God has given judgment to the Son. Jesus himself said that, didn't he? That the Father's given me judgment, the ability to judge, the authority to judge. And Paul says that to these unbelieving Greeks. He says it doesn't matter if you have a religious background like mine or not. God has commanded men everywhere, people everywhere, all around the world to repent and to put their faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus will be the judge on that day. Paul told the Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He told the Romans, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So this is not hypothetical, my friends. I'm not speaking in the hypothetical. This is not figurative language. This is real language. You and I, all of you boys and girls, all of you teens, all of you adults, every one of us here, you, me, all of us, will have a turn to stand before the judge. Every one of us. That's reality. That day's coming. What will you say to him on that day? Jesus' accusers were very committed to self-righteousness. They thought of themselves as finding life in the Bible. In other words, I read the Bible, I do the Bible. I'm okay with God. They saw themselves as self-righteous. You know, that's not just their problem, is it? Don't we all tend to do that? (laughs) I might not be perfect, but I'm not bad as a lot of people. Let me tell you some stories about some people I know. And some of those kids at school, some of those people at work, now those are bad people. (laughs) Or, you know what, I always try to be sincere, I always try to do my best. Now, I don't mean to be rude, friends, but think about that for a minute. Isn't that an awfully hollow presentation before God? I mean, not only is he the perfectly holy God, but he is the all-seeing all-knowing judge of the universe. And so for you or me to stand before the perfectly holy, all-knowing, all things, never miss a single thing you've done or said or thought, to try to convince him of your worthiness in his presence, doesn't that sound like an awfully, excuse me, foolish defense? I tried to be a good person. We're on Judgment Day where you say, all of my hope, all of my hope is in your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. He, he is my hope and stay. He, he is everything to me. What, what will you do with Jesus? But maybe more importantly, what will 
he say to you? Well, what will he say to you on that day? Will he say, away from me, you evildoer? Or will he say, yes, I know you've put your faith in me. Welcome into your master's happiness. And one more thing before we leave. This is a pastoral comment that I want to talk to you about arising from this text. And that is, when I think about what happened to Jesus here, here's Jesus making claims of being the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus making claims to be God come in the flesh. And he met with all kind of, not just resistance, but opposition. And you know, and I know, they ended up killing him for that. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Are you and I, do you, let me just ask it this way, do you and I believe the gospel? Do you and I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life? That no one comes to the Father except through him. Do you, do you believe that? Do, do you live that? Do you proclaim that? If you proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way to be right with God in our pluralistic society, I guarantee you, You're going to have kids at your school, people at your work, people in your neighborhood, people around your family reunion table are going to push back, and some of them aren't going to be nice. Some of them are going to say things like, how narrow-minded, how bigoted of you. I mean, if you want to say to Jesus is anyway that you're into Jesus, I can remember that. Live and live. You're into Jesus, I'm into my thing. But if you say, no, you misunderstand me. Jesus isn't Anyway, Jesus is the way. He's not just a truth. He is the truth. That there is no other name given to man under heaven by which people can be saved. And if you proclaim that to your schoolmates, your co-workers, your friends, your relatives, don't be surprised if you experience some of the things that Jesus experienced. That people not only resist that sometimes, but they oppose that. And I look out and I see some of the younger faces here. And I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. I have no idea what lies ahead 20, 30, 40 years from now here in our culture. But friends, friends. Whether you're a parent or not, you're an aunt, an uncle, a friend of people with kids, you're a grandparent like me. Are we teaching our kids, are we teaching our grandkids that Jesus is worth living for? Jesus is worth dying for. That we not only are willing to believe this and live this and proclaim this, but we are willing to suffer for the gospel. So far as we know, the Apostle Paul never had any biological children. But he had a spiritual son in the faith whom he loved dearly. A man named Timothy. And the Apostle Paul was in death row at the Mamertine prison in Rome, right off the forum. And as he sat in that cell, that dungeon-like cell off the forum in Rome, he wrote a last letter to his son, 
in the faith. What would you imagine a man on death row for preaching the gospel? What, what can you imagine him saying to his, his son? Can you imagine him saying something like, Son, don't go where I went. Son, keep a low profile. Son, keep calling me and don't, don't stick it up out or you might end up like me. You might end up suffering like me, son. Don't do what I did, son. Keep it quiet. Play it safe. Is, is that what Paul said to his son in the faith, even as he himself was on death row for the sake of the gospel? You know, you know what Paul said to his son? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Listen, listen. But share. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And here's a spiritual father speaking to his son and says, Son, be willing to suffer for the gospel because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Lord and Savior. He is the only Lord and Savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Son, Come suffer with me for the cause of the gospel. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. We need to be modeling for our kids and our grandkids a consistent, humble courage. A humble courage that we believe with the depths of our being that Jesus Christ If we meet opposition, we don't cower and keep a low profile, but we speak with humble courage. No, Jesus is your only way. Jesus is your only way to ever be right with God. He is.